Hi, this is Tom Field with Information Security Media Group. Today I'm talking with Stephen Katz, and the best way to describe him is he was the first CISO in the world. He's well-known in security, well-known in finance, and Steve, it's a pleasure to talk with you today just about some of the issues that banking institutions are facing this year. Uh, my pleasure, Tom, and uh, very pleased to be here and to be part of this. Steve, you're out on the road a lot now with your financial services roundtables. From what you hear, what you see, what are the top security trends that you see impacting financial institutions this year? It's kind of interesting. We really, in doing these roundtables for the Roundtable Network, uh, a couple of things have come, you know, really come to the foreground. Uh, and we mentioned this a lot. There are really three things that the information security executives, or actually any executive deals with, deals with. Things they know that they know. And that tends to be a really small part of the responsibility. The next piece, and next larger piece, is things they know that they don't know. The scariest part, and I think something that could be close to 50, 60, 70% of their responsibility, are things they don't know that they don't know. And how do you go ahead and discover uh, what it is you don't know, turn it into something you don't know, and then figure out a way to address it and make it better? If I look at the Roundtable Network and some of the things we, we've looked at over the past uh, year, uh, some of the major issues that folks have uh, brought to bear is they're concerned about uh, compliance and compliance frameworks and policies and governance. Essentially, the folks in the accounting world have it somewhat easier. They have something called GAAP, General Accepted Accounting Principles. Sure. We don't have that in security. So each company has to go ahead and find a way to provide that on their own. And they don't have the safety net of falling, to fall back and say, this is required by GAAP. So it's a matter of putting together a process within the company to say, this is what is required for us to provide a safe and secure environment for our customers. This is what is required for us to deliver on our trust commitment to our customers. This is what's required to deliver on our regulatory commitments. The next area which is causing a fair amount of concern uh, tends to be in the area of risk management metrics. How do I measure what's going on? How do I have a consistent, accurate means of demonstrating to the board or demonstrating to my business management that we are be, we are more secure than we were before, and that we are, we have made risk-based decisions. And here's the trend line, uh, looking at consistent metrics, both internally, and more, almost equally importantly, how do we compare? How do our metrics compare with the metrics in our peer group? The next area that was so a lot of uh, uh, concern raised about was data loss prevention, and how do you go ahead and ensure that? Information is kept with, that has to be kept within the company is kept within the company. And if it does get out of the company, that essentially it is protected in a way that it can't be made useful to anybody else. Data leakage is a, has been a, an area of concentration and concern. And that's very important. But I think as the article of time showed today that, uh, we, we thought we had really good, uh, laptop encryption and it turns out that that's, there's ways to uh, bypass that. Security continues to be a journey, not a destination. And especially protecting the core data itself so that even when it does get through your data loss prevention or data leak prevention uh, screens, that if it does become available to somebody else, it's in a way that uh, limits its value to the people who receive it. Another interesting area is that we get a lot of feedback on is how do you put together an effective governance program 
and then how to put together an effective security awareness education training program. And then next on our list, and certainly not least, is how do we go ahead and manage security at our outsourced service providers? What do we do to ensure that the vendors who are receiving our data, using our data, and have full access to our data are adequately securing that data? So I don't know if that adequately answers your question, so please jump back in. Uh, so Mike is disposable with that. I think the other thing that really, we really need to think about is that the CISO is either becoming or has become a critical function within, the, within corporations themselves. They are critical components of the, the business process. More and more businesses have relied totally on technology, and they have offered product and service to both customers, suppliers, supply chain, business partners. So the world has become totally borderless. And how do you go ahead and ensure that you provide adequately, adequate security and effective security while also ensuring that your company can meet its customer demands and your business leaders can make a risk-based decision? Realistically, folks in the IT world tend to be custodians of data or custodians of applications. But the owners of applications and the owners of data really are business management. And the challenge is to take the world of information security and make the risks realistic and understandable to the business folks. They will look at the security people as the experts, but the security folks have to be viewed as an integral part of the business process and really have to be viewed as people who can understand what the business is trying to offer and come up with a level, a set of alternatives that allow our businesses to move forward and uh, deliver, business, deliver products securely, but also be in a position to draw the line when a business area wants to accept the risk, and the risk is too great to accept. So, no, Tom, did I begin to answer your question? Yeah, you know, Steve, that's awfully well said. It really validates a lot of what we see out in the field as well, so it's good to hear it from you. I want to take you back to compliance for a minute. What do you see as the top regulatory issues right now for institutions of all sizes? What are they talking about most? It's what they're not talking about most that concerns me the most. And I I was on the phone with a couple of folks, people today and also with the people in the financial services, ISAC. Uh, your company has come up with a really good overview of the uh, identity uh, theft red flags uh, regulations. And it's not getting enough press. Red flags, I think, were well, the red flags regulations went into, were passed and finalized, I guess, last October. They went into effect as of January of this year, and they are auditable as of, uh, I guess, sometime October, November of this year. Yeah, first of November. I, what is frightening about it or, or challenging about it, and I think you'll, you'll provide the link to the regs, you have something like 60 pages to deal with, of regs and commentary on the regs. And each of the uh, regulatory agencies have put in comments and customized the uh, the regs to meet specific uh, FRB requirements or specific OCC requirements, et cetera. One key line in there uh, is something that has to cause every security professional to, you know, uh, come to attention quickly, and that is the board of directors are required to get involved in and understand and approve the identity risk management, uh, identity uh, theft management processes, procedures, and programs. You now have board involvement. So there's a tremendous amount of leverage to get it right. 
And with, I've, there are very few people I've spoken to uh, that are talking about uh, the Red Flags Act. Uh, first of all, it's financial services, and the, I said FFIEC is directly involved. The Federal Trade Commission is directly involved. It is really a big deal, and it's been very understated. Uh, I said I do these roundtables all you know across the country, and I've only heard it come up once. And we've been bringing it up since then. Sure. So I think if there's any pending issue, it's not so much what is out there. I mean, we've dealt with Southern Doctrine for years. We've dealt with Gremlin's Blimey for years. Uh, identity theft is getting lots and lots of press, lots and lots of play. And while it wasn't, you know, at all, you know, clandestine, the uh, Red Flags Act sort of grew and grew and grew. Uh, the commentary period through most of 07. It's in effect now, and I don't know how many folks have really put together an adequate program that has that must have board approval. The board approval, as well as the program, is going to be uh, that will begin to audit that as of, I guess, the 1st of October. Right. Examiners are tough. They really, really are. Steve, I think you make a good point there. Uh, and it certainly is. Red flags is what we hear a lot about and realize there's a lot of work to be done between now and uh, in November. You mentioned governance a few minutes ago, too, and that's something we hear an awful lot about now. From what you see in institutions, what works and what needs work in terms of governance? Governance is probably the most misused, overused word around. Uh, if I look, again, at information security world, you're looking to put together a program that defines roles and responsibilities for the board of directors, the boardroom, uh, CEO, chief business manager, senior business managers, operations managers, through individual workers, top to bottom, uh, across the corporation. You're saying that you're defining what it is you expect that the board needs to do, by the way, the board needs to approve that, what it is you, you know, the uh, operations risk uh, groups that the company have to do, what it is and end users have to do. And it's almost laying out an incredible matrix of saying who, what, who has to prepare something, who has to approve it, what it is they have to approve, what they have to do as security becomes operationalized, what kind of metrics do they have to look at, what kind of metrics do they have to prepare, and what kind of action has to be taken. It really puts a framework around information security, information risk management across the corporation. And the mistake I think we too often make is uh, we are really good about in security putting measures in that define governance from the security department on down. But it really has to begin with defining the roles and responsibilities and requirements from the board. Uh, and, this, and we mentioned the board's, you know, board's requirements and responsibilities for red flags. The board also has a, a set of requirements uh, under uh, GLBA. And and both of which will require that the that an information security officer be in place, that a program be in place. These roles have to be defined and spelled out because the board members don't have time to figure that out themselves. Uh, executive management uh, certainly has a role with levels of roles and responsibilities of what they have to do to implement, to secure, implement security and implement information risk protection, but also uh, what they have to do to ensure that the program is actually in effect and, being, and it has been truly operationalized. Uh, which also requires that uh, you have, they and you have to work to help define the metrics, and they and you have to work to review the metrics. 
and then you have to come up with recommendations or uh, requirements as what has to be done to uh, set corrective action programs in place. Um, and then it's making sure that it's fully operationalized, that the operations manager, technology manager, and business managers actually does what they have to do. And that has to be a constant feedback loop. And uh, it really comes down to putting together a highly integrated matrix of roles, responsibilities, and actions. Uh, it's a job. And I think the job of putting that together rests right in the shoulders of the head of information risk or the head of security, the head of operations risk. Steve, do you see anybody doing it uh, particularly well, or you just see people talking about it? I think various companies are doing partially very well. It is a massive responsibility, and it really it really comes down to the CISO or head of information risk or ops risk to sit down and say, we need to put together an end-to-end -end governance program, and here's the matrix that has to be filled out, and here's what has to be done. And it has to be put together like any other project and with, with a set of deliverable, deliverables and milestones. And I think, the, unfortunately, we, use, we tend to use the term governance too loosely. So it, it leaves too much room for flexibility and not enough room for really figuring out what people need to do, have to do, and must do. Steve, let me take you in another direction. We're hearing an awful lot now about pandemics, and certainly we've had, uh, we've had guidance come down from, from the regulatory agencies about it. Pandemic preparation is something that institutions haven't done particularly well. What do you see that, that they need to do to be both compliant and secure? First of all, step back and say pandemic preparation is not avian flu preparation. And I think we tend to use the two synonymously and spend an awful lot of time tracking outbreaks of avian flu and how many cases of avian flu you might have in Indonesia. Right. Uh, I think it says how do we prepare for a massive problem that can impact every employee we have, or a massive biological problem, or that can be, and what needs to be put in place. I know that the uh, CISIC, the FFS, FSSC, uh, and FFIEC had a roundtable on I think January 30th of 08. Right. And if we go out to, I think it's www.ada.com slash solutions, uh, the presentations were delivered at the uh, at the roundtable or, you know, available for public, uh, public consumption. Um, and you first realize is that you prepare for a pandemic the way you prepare for any other major crisis, whether it's an electrical crisis, whether it's a uh, natural crisis, you know, a flood, earthquake, uh, power failure. It's a crisis that you have to prepare for. You have to go through the, you know, efforts of determining what is a must-have uh, within so many hours. And it comes down to the charter of ensuring availability of, of services and what services must be made available and how do you do that uh, from remote locations and recognizing that there's only so much you're going to be able to do as an individual institution, so much you can be able to do as a sector, and so much that you're going to have to do because you're relying on communications and uh, communications networks and, uh, and power networks. Um, and it comes down to a fully integrated approach to dealing with the pandemic, but we're going to have to deal with any other major uh, major event that, that can impact our company. The problem with the pandemic is that if, if there is a pandemic, it's going to influence not just the geographical region, but essentially it will be both uh, domestic and international. So I would say the 
in terms of financial services, staying plugged into what FSSC, the FISC, is doing. Uh, OCC, I know, is actively involved and has you know, done an incredible job of sharing, uh, sharing uh, pandemic councils. And I know the uh, FSISAC has had a number of war games and a number of uh, efforts uh, directed towards dealing with the pandemic. So it's commercial for the FSISAC. I think uh, if people aren't involved with that, they really should be. Yeah, good point. So let me ask you about cybercrime. We all hear, we all know that the bad guys are getting better. But are they also getting stronger ties to organized crime as we hear? And if that's the case, then how do we fight back? Wonderful question. And I also, uh, there's a topic, I understand there was also a meeting in D.C. last week on, on cybercrime, uh, public-private sector discussion of cybercrime. And I know we've been looking at that, gosh, when I was... Uh, uh, sector coordinator for uh, the financial services sector back a bunch of years ago. This private-public sector partnership for focusing on cyber crime was, uh, you know, uh, something of a major focus. Uh, I think the if we turn the clock back 10 years ago, we were beginning to look at organized hackers. We were looking at folks who were beginning to go ahead and uh, try and harvest information and then go ahead and sell it. Uh, I think if we're looking at cyber crime today, we're looking at two major areas of concern. One is, I think, state-sponsored terrorism, state-sponsored crime. Uh, that can come from almost anywhere, whether it's whether we're looking at uh, you know, any country you want to name, whether you're looking at uh, al-Qaeda trying to attack the uh, economic infrastructure. They're out there trying to garner information and try to uh, impact the economy of the United States and thereby the economy of the world or the economy of the Western world. The other is Freelance cells of folks who found out, who figured out that you can go ahead and harvest identity information, harvest financial information, and now go out and sell it. Uh, I think what we're missing, the, the cells are, my sense is, the cells of folks who are harvesting information are pretty much like cells in uh, a terrorist network. They operate fairly independently, but they have a place where they can go ahead and, if you will, send stolen, stolen merchandise. And the level of the uh, merchandise, that you, uh, the type of merchandise that you have, will, you know, come up with a price. And it's it's almost like an e, you know an eBay for bad guys. Sure. Uh, I think what we need to do is one work much more closely together, and to combat the FSI attack. There's a way to do it. To combat the public-private sector partnerships. There's a way to do it. If I could rub my magic lamp, well, let me step back. For years, and this is not a. a you know, any, any way, shape, or form, a, uh, a slap at uh, DHS or Treasury. But DHS, Treasury are primarily uh, run by or, you know, overseen by political appointees. First six months to a year of a new administration, folks are trying to find a way. Uh, three years into or two and a half years into, uh, into their job, if they're there that long, they're trying to figure out whether they're the president whom they're going to stay in this position. And seven and a half or eight years later, they know the president's going to be out and they're going to have to go get another job anyway. If I could rub my magic lamp, and I would just look at the financial services sector, I would come up with a cybersecurity czar for financial services that would be positioned in the Federal Reserve Board or the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Very much similar to what we had with Y2K. Sure. Only the advantage you have there is that if somebody's part of the FRB, if it's under the umbrella of the FRB, you are not looking at political appointees. These folks are there at a span administrations. 
So I think if we could put together a really strong uh, cybersecurity czar for financial services in the Federal Reserve who will reach across the private sector, but also be able to reach across the public sector, uh, depoliticize it as much as possible, uh, and recognize that this is a long-term commitment, that a public-private partnership is certainly a reality that can be achieved. It's a change in consciousness that we have to put in place that says this is important to, to the country. The same way we recognize that Y2K was important to the, company, to the country, cybercrime, whether it's state-sponsored cybercrime or al-Qaeda-sponsored cybercrime or organized crime-sponsored cybercrime, can significantly impact our, our, our companies and our economy. And that if we recognize it, accept that as a reality, we have to put a program in place that will say we are bringing the resources of a private sector and public sector together with some very long-term objectives. Uh, make sure that, similar to what we did with PDD 63, bring some very top-notch talent in place. Uh, get the CISOs or heads of, of uh, op risk from the major FIs together, as well as some of the smaller FIs, and make a commitment to do this and have a paid staff under the FRB to bring it all together and coordinate it. It is not a short-term effort, but it's an effort that can be achieved. And it's one that says, Awareness is incredibly important. Sharing of information is incredibly important. And rallying around a common goal is incredibly important. It can be done. I think it, we, we've unfortunately done this with fits and starts. We did it with PDB 63. We've done it with other other efforts. It keeps, you know, coming to the foreground, slipping back, coming to the foreground, slipping back. I think uh, back in 98, uh, 97, 98, we had uh, Secretary Rubin actively involved in doing this. It, it unfortunately goes in fits and starts, but the, when there's a change in administration, again, there again fits and starts. So I think coming to, you know, looking to the FRB with, as a constant presence uh, might be the best home for this. And I think there's an absolute chance of doing it right. Boy, I hate to even suggest this, Steve, but do you think maybe there needs to be a, almost a, a cybersecurity September 11 to get people's attention and get them to rally around an idea like this? I hope not. I think if we get some really rational people in place, and uh, you know, I, I don't want to put Steve Malfoy at the Federal Reserve Board of Governors on the, you know, uh, you know, out there, but I think something under Steve Malfoy's guidance would be incredibly good to you know, to happen. Sure. It, and he would he's in a position to rally uh, the very top of the top of the financial services sector. Uh, Couple of phone, you know, phone calls from the FRB to uh, CEOs saying we need your support, and we're going to get it. Uh, maybe that's the place to look is NIAC, but that's you know that again that's uh, that tends to be based out of the White House, and again administration change, staff changes. So the only place that I see is constant is FRB, and I I don't think we really need the 9/11. I think what it needs is a a rallying point and some really strong leadership. Steve, you mentioned vendor management earlier and talking about how institutions have to get a better handle on their vendors or securing critical data. But I think a point we hear a lot more now is not just your vendors, but your vendors' vendors, fourth-party service providers. What do you see as some steps that institutions can start to take to manage their vendors a little bit better? There's a couple of things, and you—it's a spot-on question. And uh, I have to turn around and say, uh, full disclosure, I'm on the board of directors of a company called Avio Corporation that is, uh, 
has a, has a uh, vendor management product in place. It's actually, it's a vendor management tool that brings in uh, requirements from uh, FISAP to, F, uh, to FFIC guidance and on and on and on. And I, I took the board position because I viewed uh, management of third-party and fourth-party service providers as, in, as amazingly important. If you look at a large corporation, a Forgetting one of our large financial services uh, firms, whether it's the city or the JP Morgan or the Goldman, you're looking at thousands and thousands of third and fourth party vendors. And no consistent means of understanding what it is they do. I have and I had a sort of high hopes for the FISAP process, the shared assessment process that, that BITS has put together. I think that's a you know, that's an, uh, Solid question set, standard question set, uh, standard set of procedures for audit are there. Uh, I think prioritizing vendors, either using the FISAP or using uh, FFIEC guidance or using internal policy standards, incredibly good. I think what you want to do is come up with a way to have a consistently measured question set that you can use uh, across the board to measure service providers over time. You want to priority. Then you want to have two sets of priorities. One is, and I think we have to, you know, really careful. Companies have to be really careful with how they do this. You look at your top tier, with the top five percent or ten percent, and say, "Hey, all vendors are going to submit the questionnaire. Top five percent will always have a site visit, either by the financial services firm or a firm representing the financial services firm. The next ten, fifteen percent." will have telephone uh, reviews. The remaining percentage will go through periodic control self-assessment. And the results of all of the control self-assessments will trigger, will then also trigger on-site visits or telephone visits. But I think there's got to be a certain percentage that you're going to look at that control, periodic control self-assessment will be all that's necessary, assuming they fall within a certain threshold of acceptability. I fall below that, and then the question is site visit or telephone visit. There will be a percentage that, regardless of how they score on the uh, control self-assessment, they will require a, at least a telephone visit, and then there will be a percentage that will require a site visit, no matter also again no matter how they score how they score or rank on their control self-assessment. Uh, I think a consistent controlled visibility is incredibly important. I think so much of what we do today in terms of vendor assessment. Uh, tends to be done over a series of spreadsheets that winds up being incredibly labor-intensive, consistent, <laughs> and we never really have a handle on what's going on. So I think consistency is important, solid metrics are important, prioritizing the importance of your vendor and the, for the, you know, come down to the uh, type of data that they're receiving, and prioritizing what's, ex what's an acceptable level of security and what isn't. So hopefully that's giving you some view or some answers to the question. Do you think that um, the financial service executives have, have got the message that vendor management is more important now and that they're going to be getting more pressure from the regulators on this? I think they have, and I think, have you familiar with the Moody's rating system? Yes. Yeah, I think Moody's is really taking a, and uh, they're do, doing some work with Avior, but they they have taken a, uh, a, a process where they're using a, an automated rating system combined with an analyst, combined with you know, hands-on work, uh, to ultimately come up with a uh, a security rating system for third and fourth uh, party uh, vendors, uh, whether it's Moody's, and I think that's a really good way to go, or whether it's going to be similar to that, or uh, will really be extraordinarily helpful. Oh, that's a great step.
Steve, you mentioned security awareness earlier, and as you know, you know, we all know that institutions struggle with doing enough security awareness for their employees and for their customers. Do you see mm -hmm. any examples of this being done well with, with either constituency, with employees or customers? Uh, I hate to turn to one of my alma maters. Right? <laughs> City, has put, uh, City has put together, and we had put together a program years ago. They've improved upon it by a number of orders of magnitude. Uh, They've put together security awareness training videos, security awareness training uh, programs for employees as well as service providers as well as customers. Um, they have uh, really done a remarkable job of recognizing that uh, they also have to do with security awareness training for their security or risk management infrastructure. So I think every one of the everybody in uh, within the, who has anything to do with information security is trained. Another company that does an incredibly good job is uh, Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. And they have an ongoing security awareness program that's been quite effective. Uh, there's, and they've managed to get commitment from their CEO, who actually take, who takes act, an active part, an active role in the, not only their ongoing day-to-day -day security practices, but also right there in the middle of their annual security day, and it's shown up a couple of times in costume. In fact, I think a year or two ago they had a... Uh, we did something about piracy, and here's the CEO in a pirate's costume. <laughs> but, again, they, they take it seriously. The commitment has come not only from the security office, but also from the very top of the corporation. And if it's meaningful for the, to, the top, to the top of the corporation, and you can get the CEO to take part in it, it's going to be meaningful to everyone uh, below the CEO. Now, what do you see happening with some of the smaller institutions, if anything? Because, you know, too often it comes down to a matter of resources, and, and the bigger institutions have the resources, the smaller ones don't. There are a couple of firms out there that provide security awareness and training programs. Some of them are online, some of them are videos that are darn effective. And they, from what I understand, are not that particularly expensive. Uh, and they're, they will help all the company, help, you know, get the message out. The other part is, and I'm, if we're looking for financial services, get to the ISAC conference. I, mean, I hate to sound like a, uh, you know, a commercial for the FS ISAC, but it's on their agenda. It's a peer group, so you can get it and find out what it is that folks at the other institutions are doing and copy it. Sure. Plagiarism is the greatest form of flattery. Yeah. Well said. Now, you mentioned before that, uh, that ID theft red flags is sort of the one issue that's not getting the attention it deserves. What else do you see as you look around at institutions, aside from, from red flags? What do you think they're not paying attention to as much as they should be? That touches on an interesting thought, is that you see an awful lot of managing security for compliance and compliance-based security. And then you're looking at, on the other side of, you know, moving away from the we're looking at risk-based security. Uh, so many of the regulations that are out there, whether it's SOX or whether it's Gremlich, Bliley, or are out there because the firms themselves are not delivering on the trust commitment that they have made to their customer, and the trust commitment is being is being reinforced by regulation. Uh, I think an effective security program will not transcend uh, HIPAA. Will transcend. Uh, Protecting employee information will transcend protecting financial information. It says, what do we have to do to deliver trust, to ensure trust, uh, ensure our trust commitment to our customers, our employees, our, our service providers, 
uh, our consulting staffs. We did, sort of coming back to security with, uh, we did some work at City back in, uh, you know, a while back when we had uh, John Reed stand up in a video and say, City Group or City Corporate Time really only had two products, money and trust. And if you're not selling the trust, you're not going to sell the money. And I think it's that kind of commitment that comes down that says, we are going to deliver on the trust commitment to our customers, we're going to deliver on the trust commitment to our employees, and put an effective program in place that is risk-based, uh, recognize that there is a minimum baseline that we have to meet anyway. And as long as we do that, the regulations will come, you know, will not be a challenge. Because the regulations are just there to ensure that we deliver a proper level of security. If we're delivering a proper level of security, we never really have to worry about the regulations per se. We've analyzed risk, we've determined what's best for our customer, we've made recommendations to business management, risk-based recommendations, and in some cases, the recommendation is you really, you know, uh, we as the head of tech risk have to insist that this is the way to go and elevate it to a, a, a risk management committee of the board. But put, if you put an effective program in place, you really don't have to worry about the regs. Uh, the red, you know, red flags are different, it's almost falls within that, but red flags is so specific to identity theft that it requires something out of bound, out of band rather. But the, uh, if we look at GLBA, we look at Sarbanes-Oxley, we look at HIPAA, we look at any we look at PIPA out of this country, we look at any of the data breach protection uh, regulations. If we're doing what's right, we're not going to have to really, well, we have to certainly have to pay attention to regulations. We know we're going to be meeting them. If we protect data as the source of the data and we have a data-centric approach, uh, confidentiality is going to be maintained. If we can turn around and have a really solid way of analyzing uh, end-user behavior, whether the end-user is a customer, whether the end-user is an employee or a member of the supply chain, and know what they're doing, when they're doing it, where they're doing it, and have sort of and have a behavior analytics uh, process in place, uh, we'll be able to turn around and say, we know what's happening, and we are reacting to efforts that we, we, we know what we know, and we're making decisions based upon what we know, and use the analytics to help us figure out what we don't know, and then change our process to make sure that we are we're managing reality. And I don't think our regulations are going to be much of a problem. I think it's really, regulations are, you know, only tend to be causes a lot of pain when we are somehow not delivering the level of security we really should be delivering in the first place. As you say, it all comes back to this one fen- fundamental issue of trust. That's the issue. Mm-hmm. If you, and coming back to fundamentals, if we look at this marvelous thing that happened at South Gen. It, it's come down, at least if we believe the, uh, the media coverage, it was a breakdown in fundamental control. It was a breakdown in understanding what it is end users do. It's, an under, it's understanding that you now have somebody in Department A who is doing things that only people in Department B, C, D, and E are doing. It's understanding that segregation of duty that should have been in place wasn't in place. There's, somebody mentioned at one of my roundtables that if you're with a company long enough, eventually you'll have access to everything and no one will know about it. Yeah, you're and, right. And I think so much of, you know, a fundamental is, do we really know what applications our end use or customers are accessing, yeah, accessing? Do we know when they're accessing them? Do we know why they're accessing them? And is what they're accessing normative behavior? What they're doing is, you know, matches what their group should be doing? Or are they doing something that's out of normal balance of the group that they're part of. And instead of trying to rely on businesses to tell us what they think 
uh, people should have access to, wouldn't it be great if we can go back to the businesses and say, here are the applications that these people are accessing. Uh, is that right? As opposed to saying, you go define a role or roles and responsibility in groups. Let's go back and let's see, let the behavior define the group. And then take it from there. Steve, you mentioned the, the roundtables a few minutes ago. Tell us a little bit about the roundtables, where you go, who you talk to, and, and the types of conversations you're having. Roundtables are an incredibly interesting uh, activity that I managed to, I was fortunate enough to get involved in about three years ago. And we wind up having, we hold 50 roundtables a year in roughly 10 cities across the, uh, the United States and Canada. We invite CISOs from uh, major firms to each of the roundtables. We generally have 12 to 15 CISOs at each of the roundtables. Uh, they are, in our case, sponsored by vendors, but they're really there to enhance networking among the CISOs in the particular, in the particular city that we're, where we're in. And we're really there to help articulate pain points and have the folks who participate share how they're dealing with these pain points, what the, are they really pain points for their organization. And what I found most beneficial to these roundtables uh, and the company is the roundtable network, is that we're there once every two to three months. But by and large, most of the people who attend these uh, roundtables, and we probably have 50% overlap at each roundtable, stay in contact with each other uh, in between the roundtables. Oh, wow. But we counted professional networking events for them. There are no dues. They don't pay anything to attend. But they do, and we get their permission at each roundtable to share the contact information. These folks stay in contact with each other so that when there is a problem or there is a concern, they can pick up the phone and say, hey, Mary, I'm seeing this. Have you seen it? And it's outside the bounds of any organization. Uh, I know they get together for lunches, two or th and three or four of them at a time. I know they get together you know, for drinks occasionally. But it becomes a very informal network of security professionals who are dealing with the same problems, sort of know the secret handshake and code words, and they respect each other and help each other out. And to me, that's the most gratifying part about what I'm doing now is helping to build these professional ad hoc professional networks at this point in 50 cities. But that's just the best testimonial you right. could have. It really is. Absolutely. Well, Steve, I, I really appreciate your time and your insight today. My pleasure, Tom. If there's anything else I can do, please feel free to let me know. We've been talking with Stephen Katz. He's been giving us his insights on what he's seeing in financial institutions in 2008. For Information Security Media Group, I'm Tom Field. Thank you very much.